welcome to a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. My name is Christine Altwies. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and for 30 years I worked in intercountry and domestic adoption and family counseling. I'm the clinical director at Kona Roots Counseling Center, where our focus is on family systems, and I'm also a mother. I've created a Really Good Enough Parent podcast in response to what we see every day in our clinic. Childhood mental health issues are skyrocketing, and it doesn't have to be this way. I know that really good enough parenting is a skill we all possess. As a parent myself, I also understand how easy it is to lose sight and to mistrust or panic in the face of a melting down child or an impudent teen. The good news is that you have what it takes to help your child. Take a breath, see your child's innocence. You can do this. This podcast will feature some of the incredible people I've been lucky enough to meet in my life. No two have raised their children the same, and all have done a really good enough job. You'll hear new perspectives on how to handle tough situations. You'll be reminded of how your own parenting takes its cue from childhood. And hopefully, you'll feel invigorated to go do a really good enough job at this most rewarding of all human endeavors. A Really Good Enough Parent podcast is designed to be story time for adults. So thanks for being here with me today. I do appreciate you. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of A Really Good Parent Podcast. Usually at this point, I would be recording a short biographical intro to my upcoming guest um, and share with you how I know this person and why I'm excited to feature them. That's no different this time. I am very excited to share with you um, this most amazing person, Trisha Legasso Goldberg, who I've known and admired for many years uh, as a mother and professional person in the community, great artist and advocate of the arts, and just all around super cool person. I'm recording this intro, though, a little differently because usually I script it and I record it, but this time I'm just going to speak to you without a script and try and get through this um, as gracefully as possible. I want to introduce this upcoming episode with a note, and that is that throughout this episode, I thought I was doing a good job referring to Trisha's child, Primo, with the correct pronouns. Trisha reminded me prior to the commencement of the recording that Primo goes by they, them. Trisha reminded me, I was like, sure, no problem. It'll take a little extra thinking, but I am so happy to do this, and I think I'll do a good job. One time during the interview, near the end, I messed up, and I referred to Primo by the wrong pronoun, and I noted it to myself, and I thought, okay, have to go back in and edit that. Uh, when Trisha and I were emailing back and forth after the interview had ended, uh, just following up on a few things, Trisha wrote and said, I'm paraphrasing, but basically, you know, I really enjoyed the interview. I need to say to you that uh, throughout the interview, you miscorrectly identified Primo with the wrong pronouns. Uh, and I just feel the need as Primo's mother to say this because it's our job to advocate and in these times, especially when so many folks are under attack for attempting to live their lives authentically, 
uh, it's my job as a mother and advocate to speak up when I notice this. Uh, I hope this doesn't offend you. And I wrote back and I said, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful you said something. I'm horrified because I literally thought that I had done a great job. I'd been so careful and I noticed only one time in my recollection where I had used the wrong pronoun. I went back and listened to the interview and there are so many times, probably far more times than I correctly identified Primo with they, them, that I incorrectly identified Primo with the wrong pronoun. What's interesting about this to me as somebody who prides herself on being aware and supportive of all people is that this summer I'd had an experience with an old girlfriend whose child goes by they them and this girlfriend was really struggling um, and at times frustrated with her inability to refer to her child correctly and throughout my visit with my friend and her child I kept thinking like how can this be so hard why is she having a hard time I can do this look at me and then I would use the correct pronouns very you know consciously and left thinking well my friend is intelligent and I know she loves uh, the child but why is this such a difficult thing for her it must be because and then I gave my own explanation to myself um, then I do this interview badly in some sense in the sense of not being able to respect my guests child's preference a few days after the interview you know freshly determined to never make this mistake again my daughter and I were on a college tour and our tour guide um, was a wonderful person who um, introduced themselves and said and I go by the pronouns they them and I was like great I got this I can do this I am so excited to have another opportunity and we went through the whole tour and I think I pretty I know because my daughter was there monitoring me successfully referred to this wonderful person with the proper they them pronouns as we were saying goodbye I turned to their supervisor and said hey I just want to let you know we really enjoyed this tour and Reese did a really great job. You should definitely give incorrect pronoun a raise. And we walked away. I didn't realize I'd done that. My daughter said to me, mom, you just used the wrong pronoun. What is the point of all this? The point is that we should never stop trying we should not make excuses and we should gracefully accept feedback when people who are leading the way in this difficult struggle for equity inclusion and diversity and all the other good things when those folks have the courage to speak up to us, we should gracefully accept that feedback and renew our efforts each time to do the right thing. And I don't, I, I feel 
I feel excited about this interview um, for so many reasons. I am hesitant to share it because a lot of the misuse of pronouns I could not edit out. Um, so hopefully as you listen to this, you will also be aware um, of the importance of honoring somebody's preference, choice, identity, and um, let's continue to do the right thing for people who have very simple requests of us, which is to allow them to live their lives authentically. How can we question what someone else needs if we're not that person? It blows my mind that this is even a discussion we're having. I'm humbled to have made so many mistakes in the past couple weeks. I'm renewing my commitment to be better, do better, not excuse my mistakes, but to just say it's my responsibility to try harder. And that was a lot of words for an intro. Thank you for still listening. And without further ado, I am very excited to give you Trisha Lagasso Goldberg and myself in an interview about being a really good enough parent. Thank you. another episode of a really good enough parent podcast i am so excited and thrilled and honored to have my next guest with me today i have known trisha lagasso goldberg for i don't know how many years many years through your sister through the art museum of uh, the state art museum in hawaii and just because it's a generally small and cozy community welcome trisha Thank you. So good to be here. It's really great to have you. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, in addition to just thinking that you're a fabulously smart person, is because I admire the parenting you've done to your fabulous person, uh, Primo. And I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about what it was like raising Primo. But I thought we could start with maybe a little bit about your own background and what led you to become such a really good enough parent. So can you share a little bit about how you were raised, where you were raised, what the sort of energy was around parenting when you were a little cakey. Sure. Yeah. It's so good to be here, Christine. Thanks so much for inviting me to chat with you. Um, I was really looking forward to this conversation. I love being a parent and really, um, you know, that part of myself uh, and identity has been really central to the second part of my life. Um, I was born and raised on Oahu, and um, both of my parents, Natty Lagasso and Al Lagasso, were incredible parents. Um, you know, we were a super tight-knit family. Um, I, when I was first, you know, when I was really little, my parents owned a place in Waipahu, which is a largely um, kind of immigrant Filipino neighborhood, and then we moved when I was uh, maybe six years old, to Aiea, which is where our family home is now. And I've loved both places dearly. Um, and Aiea was really more Pan-Asian. Um, and I eventually went to high school in town, which is like Hawaii people will understand that, that um, 
not quite sure where that vernacular comes from, but we refer to the city as town. So I had to commute, you know, an hour at least um, every day to get from my home to our to my middle school and high school, Mid Pacific Institute, um, when I was older, and that I think had a really huge impact on um, my whole experience in Hawaii because I began circulating with folks who were not from my immediate neighborhood who weren't Filipino like me or even Asian. I met like the most Howley like friend group ever, you know, when I got to mid-pack. So that was kind of a game changer for me. Um, but just thinking about the way in which we were raised, I come from a family of three kids. So I have, I'm the youngest of three girls and, um, you know, I grew up in a very family centric uh, and extended family, uh, clan. So we have, my mom has like, I don't know, seven or eight brothers and sisters. She's the second to the oldest kid and everybody, each one of those siblings has at least one to three children. (laughs) So that math adds up really quick. And my cousins were really like my siblings and my aunts and uncles were really um, surrogate parents to me. So, um, you know, I, I, in some ways it's, um, it's, it's, you know, we have a huge family, but it's also Hawaii style. So Hanai, you know, siblings, brothers, sisters, cousins, that uh, circle expands pretty quickly. And when my husband, David Goldberg, and I got married a number of years ago, we joked that the uh, camera person had to pull way back to uh, fit everybody into one frame. That's how big our family was. I love that. Um, yeah, it was just raised in a very, um, you know, kind of very Christian, um, but not conservative. Uh, My parents are super politically progressive. um, And I really learned a lot about service and being in service to a community through the work they did in the church. So I, you know, day one of my existence started going to Aldersgate United Methodist Church. We went every single Sunday and we also ate every single dinner together, at least, um, and that's a tradition that we carry on today in my own home. And because even though I'm in Hawaii and a number of my guests have been from Hawaii, we have never on this podcast had the word Haole or Hanai. So I'm really glad you've introduced some good words um, for those who don't know Haole um, in Hawaiian means without breath, but it also has come to mean white person. Um, and we use that word, right? I mean, that's, I assume how you meant it just now. Um, white people, yeah. Hawaii. And then Hanai means um, family, basically. And in Hawaii, uh, our families are often uh, wonderful composites of strangers, family members, blood, not blood. And I think that's what you're also talking about here with your Hanai um, church family members, all sorts of people sort of making up the constellation of your great big wonderful family. Yeah. Um, can you share a little bit about the upbringing and whether or not you consider it to be um, exemplary of a Filipino cultural component? Because I know that that's, I, I believe, been a big part of your life and upbringing. And for those who don't know much about um, Philippine con- culture, if you could share a little bit about whether or not that was, that played a large role in your upbringing. Yeah, you know, um, I, I'm so short answer is yes. Uh, you know, my both of my parents. So my mom was born in the Philippines. My dad was born on 
the Big Island in the territory of Hawaii. So before was born in you know on the Big Island before Hawaii became a state, and they're a year apart. So they're both born in the late '30s and both you know survived the Second World War in their respective locations. They met on Oahu um, at our church, actually at Aldersgate United Methodist Church. So. Um, you know, the church played a really central role. It was an, it's an immigrant Filipino church. So a lot of newcomers to Hawaii go to the church to, you know, find fellowship, make community, and also to learn, you know, like, um, where to get the best, you know, Filipino vegetables, or, you know, it's really like a, a kind of service agency in some ways. I mean, I think that's not unusual for, uh, um, for a place of worship to play that role for, especially for newcomers who are um, emigrating to a new location. Uh, so my dad was the choir director at the church. So he passed away in 2014 and he was the choir director there for, I mean, I'm 53. Um, he was the choir director there almost my whole life. You know, certainly when I was born, he was already the director and my mom served um, as part of the leadership team. They both did. And my, my mom actually went on from being a regional uh, director of the re, the Hawaii, the United Methodist Women. They have a new name. I can't think of what it is right now. Um, to be, And I'm talking about the church first because that's really like kind of the core of where they spent a lot of their time. It was really um, kind of the core of our Filipino community in many ways outside of our family. Um, but she went on to serve as the director of the Western region for United Methodist Women. And as a Filipino-American, I think that was really important um, that she was uh, seen and regarded as a leader. Um, so that's one aspect of my Philip. I, I joke and I tell folks that I learned how to be Filipino at church, <laughs> you know, but this is where I learned like to pay respect to you know, the, um, the, in Filipino, there are all these terms of ways of regarding both younger and elder folks, but I, there are terms of respect, and you can use it on folks that you don't know, so that you've just met, or in the street, or you can use it in your own family. So this is an, uh, also a way in which I kind of built my sense of community and family life is, is in the church. Uh, I was super embarrassed about it when I was younger, like, you know, I don't know, with all my, a lot of my friends growing up in high school were not religious, you know, and it, even if their families did identify a certain way, like as Catholic or Protestant or Jewish, no, nobody really went to church like my family did. So it was something that I didn't talk about. And um, now I kind of put it forward for a couple different reasons. Um, be, one, because it's true, like it's really where my family, um, you know, uh, worshipped together and came together as, uh, as part of a Filipino, a broad Filipino community um, where they did service. And also because I think a lot of, um, a lot of uh, religions are coming under fire and, um, and at the heart of um, some pretty divided conversations, especially in our country. So I, I just want to uh, be sure to shout out my parents um, and, and the church that I was raised in. Um, but yeah, so Filipino-ness, I think it was a huge part of my identity. My father was the choir director at church and the choir director for a Filipino choir called the Pamana Singers. Um, and they practiced in our house. They sang in Filipino and in English. Um, they, 
you know, received grants from the city. They, you know, they were a real nonprofit and my dad led it for many years. So that was a part of our lives. Um, and my, I come from a family of artists and crafters and uh, both my, on both sides of the family, I came from basket weavers. So my grandfather was a basket weaver and an incredible craftsperson. Um, and then my grandma on my dad's side was also a basket weaver and, you know, both amazing cooks. My grandmother on my, on my mom's side, amazing cook, um, you know, and seamstress and, and homekeeper and many other things. Um, so yeah, I identify in a major way with my, with being Filipino. And today I continue to, uh, have real skin in the game when it comes to Filipino art and culture. And I think I, you know, have continued to, uh, I feel like it's part of my responsibility as now an elder in my community to pass it on. And to, I continue to work with uh, emerging Filipino artists. Yeah. And in fact, uh, one of the ways that we met, we met initially through Waldorf schools, but then when I was on the board of a friends of the um, Hawaii State Art Museum, you were at that point working in the Culture and the Arts Commission, I believe. I'm not sure what your title was, um, but I reached out to you and you were one of the few people who was very eager to talk with me and share insights that I desperately needed. Um, so I've always seen you as somebody who was very uh, much connected to the community and who seems to take your responsibility to the community very seriously. Um, I love the idea of your family and I've interacted with your family on different levels over the years, but one image I have really strong is of you and your mom and at least your younger sister, and I'm not sure if your other sister was there, um, at the craft fair selling really gorgeous, I think it was wreaths um, at the holiday season, but your mother um, just struck me as such a beautiful, regal woman. And I think, you know, when you get to know somebody and you know their family and you have an idea of sort of the look and feel of it, it tells you so much about, um, you know, what the upbringing might have been like in the sense that I got was tight family, heavily connected to the community. And as you say, also really imbued with the arts. And so now moving forward, once you finish Midpack, you decide to stay in the arts and you went to school for art history and studio art, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I um, I studied with Kauka da Silva at KCC, actually. So this is like the very beginning. Well, I mean, I went to Mid-Pacific. I went to MPI and I studied theater there. And when I got into college, I, start, I took my first studio course at KCC with Kauka da Silva. And that was kind of, uh, you know, an aha moment for me. It was something that I didn't know about really making how to make things in that way, like in a contemporary art, uh, detached from my um, family craft home life, which my mom, you know, we were raised in a house of making. So my mom was put that kind of at the center of our lives um, and made a beautiful life for, for all of us. Uh, but I studied art at KCC and then at UH, and then I transferred to the San Francisco Art Institute where I finished my undergraduate degree in new genres. And then I um, did a graduate degree much later at San Francisco State University in art history. And I, you know, kind of had a parallel track of making work and showing my artwork in exhibitions and pretty early had the opportunity to create exhibitions. And that really kind of um, spoke to me and made sense. 
Uh, I think I my, my mom used to say in high school, I was a terrible high school student. And she used to say that if I spent as much time on my homework as I did organizing my social life, that I'd be a straight A student, which I wasn't. Um, and and it's true, you know, I, I spent a lot of time organizing my social life and paying attention to relationships and hierarchies and politics and gossip. And, you know, the, all of that, I think, has played a role in the in the role that I, I serve as, as curator. You have to kind of have eyes on a million and one different um, details, relationships, vendors, artists, institutional representatives. I mean, I'm an independent curator now, but I curated my first exhibition when I was in my late 20s. Um, actually, before I got my graduate degree, I started curating. So I've been doing it for a long time. And, you know, I... Um, it's, you know, kind of, again, this double track of like making art and then making exhibitions launched simultaneously. Which makes you a better curator because you have an intimate understanding of what it takes to make the, the art, right? So um, that's fascinating. I think so. Yeah. Um, you have a very interesting nuclear family now, your new family, the family you've created since uh, becoming a wife and mother. And um, I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about that sort of maybe what you gained from your own childhood and how that influenced your desire to become a mother um, and or a partner to somebody um, and how you then um, raised Primo. Can you share a little bit about yeah. that? Sure, yeah. Um, I've been with my partner, my husband, David Goldberg, for, um, gosh, long. we've been together now longer than we were apart. So we met when we were like 23 years old. It's hard to believe. So we've been together for 30 years. And um, I always knew that I wanted to be a mom. Um, I was really looking forward to this conversation because it's something that I don't get to talk about very often in my life. I mean, everyone, I think most of my friends and my friends and colleagues know that I'm a mom, but it's not like you talk about it every day, you know, um, and it's really something I have is one of my favorite things. Um but David and I were together for a long time before we got married. So we were together for maybe six years and then we got married. And then a couple of years later, we had a kid. Um, it was all very intentional. You know, we, we wanted it, you know, ever since I was really young, I knew I wanted to have at least one kid. Um, and I think if things were different, I would have had more. I, you know, had a, an illness. I have a chronic illness that I was grappling with after I had Primo and I wasn't able to, you know, by the time it, I wanted to have a second kid. David was kind of game, but, um, you know, I think we, it was, it's really difficult to have both an illness and children. That's a whole other topic of conversation. Um, yeah. but we were, yeah, we were super, um, I don't know. I mean, like the whole pregnancy and having a baby and bringing, you know, new life, um, into this world was really powerful experience for both David and I, um, I think Dave and I are really lucky in that we are, you know, to this day, like it's so cliche to say, but we're super close. We're best friends. We crack each other up. You know, we are um, constantly just trying to, um, you know, be better people with each other. And um, I, I won't say it's, it's been, you know, a walk in the park, but 
it's been pretty delightful. Yeah, <laughs> I'm having a hard time is, not smiling at um, the thought of the three of you together because, <laughs> like, it's just even the image of the two of you, the three of you. It's just, it's just sheer joy and happiness. And I understand life is not always easy, and relationships are hard. But I think the way you crafted your life very conscientiously, and the way you brought Primo into the world, and the way you've raised them, it's very. Uh, it just, I'm even goosebumpy. It just feels joyful. And maybe some of that has to do with, you know, how you were raised. Probably a lot of it has to do with that, that you chose a partner so carefully that you and David have been so um, sincere and and um, intentional in how you relate to each other. You understand that the relationship really impacts the child, right? The marital or partnership relationship that you have with your with the child's other parent is truly important in the child's long-term mental health, physical health choices. Um, and I don't think it's a little thing that you are both working in the arts, which is something you deeply love and feel connected to. And when you do meaningful work, that affects everything in a really positive way. So now back to you. That's my little lecture on why you guys are awesome. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. That's really sweet of you to say. Yeah, when I was younger, you know, I also felt like a little embarrassed about um, and throughout my our time together, I felt have felt a little like I, I don't even know what the word is. It's like a little embarrassed at like how happy we are, um, because I know that there's so much struggle in the world. But I've had other folks tell me that, you know, it is it is our our love and our bond and our um, our closeness, you know, as a family that is. Uh, has been a kind of a model or, I mean, I'm not saying that that is it, but other folks have told me that, that they have looked to us for inspiration. Um, and yeah, Dave and I are super proud of the family that we've made together. And we're really close with both of our parents, with our both sets of both family members, side, both sides of our family. And, um, and I, and we just hope that, um, yeah, I don't know. We who knows how how things are going to go for Primo if they decide to have a family for themselves. But I do have one kid, and we brought them into the world twenty years ago, um, and it's just been, you know, I mean, honestly, Dave and I never argued until Primo came. I mean, when they were really little, like as an infant, you just have no idea what you're doing, and the whole objective is to keep the baby alive, right? So there's like the, I know that some parents don't think about that, but it's like. Just keeping the baby alive is a team sport, and we have really uh, approached parenting as a team. So there's that. Just putting that out there. I am not. I have never been really a single parent. And shout out to all those single parents. I don't know how y'all do it. I have so much respect. David's mom, you know, for the most part, raised both of her children on her own, and I just have such respect for folks who are flying solo. Um, but so we did it together. We made lots of decisions. Um, and, you know, honestly, I think it's because we have such uh, open communication. We, we talked about our values and as individuals and as, and as parents raising this human um, all throughout. So we keep doing it, you know, like we do kind of check-ins with each other. Um, so yeah, we've done that from the very beginning. So a lot of what we've done has been intentional and, um, I mean, I would say that, you know, the, aside from the team, team sport aspect, what's that, that saying teamwork makes the dream work. Uh -huh. You know, I think that's definitely true in this case, um, communicating with each other, but, but also like we had a, we kind of treated Primo like an art project, 
<laughs> you know, like we, I know it sounds kind of funny, but like the, I, I think we both, Dave and I both approached raising this kid like a project and we had very intentional kind and we had very clear goals. The main goal was to raise a mutant. Right. And so like folks ask like, well, what does that mean or whatever? And it's like, well, you know, we did all these experiments, cool experiments, not cruel ones, but like we did these experiments like, you know, well, what would happen if you raise a kid without conforming to these gender norms? So putting the boy in pink, you know, and letting them play how they want to play and identify themselves how they want to, what would happen then? So a lot of like the decision, the way that we parented was thinking way outside the box, you know? Um, so recognizing that there is a box that we're all mm, expected to fit into. And that means the way that I present myself, you know, in, in my gender, in as a Filipino, as a woman, you know, all of these different things, like what are, what are the expectations of me to perform who I am? Uh, what if we kind of erased or dulled or dialed back a lot of those uh, parameters? What would, what, would, what would happen then, you know? Um, and then just kind of, and, and I would say the same is true about like introducing kind of complex concepts of, an art art concept from art to theology to math to race to culture to art making. I mean, we never dumbed down and talked baby talk to Primo and really respected their intelligence and curiosity from day one. So, you know, we did different things like I very intentionally started reading to Primo when they were six months old. And we read to them every single night, you know, almost without fail um, for, I don't know, eight years, something like that. I mean, a long time until they started reading on their own. And um, they kicked us out of the reading space and said that I want to now read to myself. Um, that was an intentional move, you know, like reading to them and not, I mean, talk, baby, talk, do whatever you want. But it's like, again, this is just like one of the, these are part of the experiment, like, well, what would happen if, and so we did all of these, like, what would happen if, and um, I think we see the kind of results of that experimentation. Yeah, so I know um, you want to be careful to not brag too much, but I'll brag for you, um, if I can. So Primo, and also, it seems like no matter how I try or don't try, Waldorf comes up in almost every talk. Uh, that I have with people that I love. Um, Waldorf was a big part of your life and a big part of Primo's life. Primo was at Waldorf for, I'm not sure, was it the full eight years before high school? Or? It was the full, yeah, even longer, actually, because they went to morning nursery. Right. Okay. So that obviously was a conscious choice. It's an incredibly creative and nurturing environment. Um, low tech, no tech, which is interesting because your husband or your partner um, works in web design, creative, graphic, art in a technological space, right? And still you were able to raise Primo in, a, in the Waldorf atmosphere to some extent, which is 
you know, very loudly anti-tech in those early years. Do you want to say anything about the intersection between creativity and technology and, and your parenting approach with that? Yeah, um, I mean, you, yeah, you said, you said it, you know, it's like Waldorf, uh, we didn't know about Waldorf in a major way in, until we had Primo and we had, you know, I gave birth to Primo in San Francisco and we moved to Hawaii when they were one. And um, they turned two in Hawaii and then they spent every birthday until 15 there. And when we when it came time to look for a, a school, you know, like they were ready to socialize. My older sister, Malia Largasso, is a early childhood development specialist. And I just asked her. I was super lucky because she um, knew everything. She knew everything already, you know. Um, and she said, well, if it were me, I would send my kid to Waldorf. And we're like, what's that? You know, so that was really our introduction when Primo was maybe two and a half, three years old, maybe three and a half. Um, we looked at all these different uh, education programs, the curriculum, their approach, philosophies, et cetera. And, um, you know, bar none, Waldorf came out just, you know, a huge distance ahead of these other, these other programs, which are equally like loving or creative and all these things. But Waldorf just was the environment for a mutant. We really wanted to raise again, like a kid who was really different from, you know, I don't know, just like how we were seeing these, these contemporary um, families and parents, you know, raising their children, we wanted to do things differently. So what was so different about Waldorf? Like you said, it was, um, it was a place that really prioritized children as individuals, um, but also encouraged and centered their curriculum on collaboration and community. And for sure that there was, you know, like just the environment, when you walk into a classroom, there's hardly any plastic in sight, you know, a typical classroom, a preschool classroom, there's only plastic in sight, you know, it's easy to, uh, it's easy to sterilize and it's bright and colorful and water just has a totally different approach to um, that whole environment in which children are raised and they, they really um, center the learning on the child's imagination. And, you know, this is, um, that was so clear from the start, like having wood toys and, you know, lots of natural materials, silks and sheepskin and, you know, cotton bags. And I don't know, just like everything in the, in the classroom space felt so cozy and wow, to think about our child having the opportunity to learn and become in this very loving and cozy and um, uh, wide open space where their imagination could um, come to the front and, you know, like the barriers were very low to everything in, in the classroom that you'd want to learn um, and, and learn of yourself. Um, so this was kind of our, in, you know, our introduction was they were maybe three years old. They started going to school part time there and then they stayed until eighth grade. They graduated all the way through. Waldorf also has this really unique. I don't have to tell you, Christine, you were raised also in this environment. But if you're lucky, the model in a Waldorf education is that you will have the same instructor from grade one 
to grade eight. And the idea is that this teacher grows with the class and, you know, in an ideal Waldorf situation, you have no more than 25, 30 students in a class, uh, maybe even smaller. And our class had about, you know, 25. And, um, that, you know, that you grow with this teacher and that the teacher ends up knowing you and this student so well that they can literally teach directly to the way in which your student needs them to teach and to receive this information, whether it's, you know, math or German, uh, German or Spanish language or Japanese, etc. So we were lucky in that we um, were paired with the teacher, with a with a seasoned, tenured, expert Waldorf teacher, Mrs. Lynn Auberg, who you know was Primo's teacher from grade one, and they were just a match, you know. And because sometimes that happens that children don't match with their Waldorf teacher, but in Primo and Mrs. Auberg's case, it was a perfect match, and she saw him them for who they were, and vice versa. You know, I think that Primo really loved that Mrs. Auberg respected them and their uniqueness and their imagination and all of their quirks and was non-judgmental. And I think Mrs. Auberg just knew how to encourage that, you know, sparkling, shiny, precious part of each child and and, to, and know, knew how to kind of hold a space for these children individually until they walked across that graduation line. And she did that for Primo and we're still close with her today. I still send her like proud mom, you know, news. It's like, yeah. she's an auntie. She's absolutely a part of our Hanai family, a hundred percent. You know, so Walter amazing. played a huge role. Yeah. And then they have the, as you mentioned, like the non uh, mediated, mediated spaces and, you know, they don't include TV or computers as part of the, um, as part of the curriculum, um, it, you know, it's all analog. And I think that that, I know that that had a major, that played a major role in Primo's becoming and um, Primo being able to really think for themselves and, you know, encourage a kind of blossoming of their imagination. So you've had a sort of bi-coastal San Francisco, Hawaii um, life since school, since you went to college. And I am so eager to share for you to share what Primo is is doing now and sort of what their life has become. And I remember, I think, if this is correct, that after eighth grade, you and your husband decided that you really needed to find the perfect high school setting for Primo or the most appropriate setting. And is that when you moved back to San Francisco so that Primo could attend high school at a at a more sort of arts focused performance art? I think it was a performing arts kind of high school did you go to yeah um actually we moved back to the bay area david's from the bay area and then i you know did spent many years here um getting a couple degrees and working i really launched my my career as a curator and arts leader here um so we already had a life here and i never we never disconnected from that um so you know we had what 14 years in hawaii and it was just time to move back to the Bay, you know, there, for a couple of different reasons. One, because of David's family. So David was raised by his incredible mom, mom, Barbara Goldberg, and his auntie, um, uh, Marilyn Pope, who passed away. So she was, they were, they actually were both diagnosed with cancer, like right before that was contributed to our decision making to move back to the Bay that we really felt like 
you know, we had spent so much time with my folks in Hawaii and wanted to be closer to um, David's parents, to his family, and also for Primo to have uh, that time, you know, with uh, with David's side of the family. So I think that was a major motivator. Uh, beyond that, I, you know, was looking to kind of, I, there were some projects that I just couldn't do in Hawaii. You know, I the scale, the scope, the kind of partnerships I was interested in forming, um, just the ideas that I, I knew I, I had to kind of make these projects. I did a lot in Hawaii that I'm really proud of, and I love the art community there. I stay ever focused and committed to uh, different commun- arts communities there, but I never disconnected from the Bay Area. So this is, um, I continue to curate here and um, cultivate these relationships in the Bay. So it was just time to come back. And it we had actually planned to be in Hawaii for all of Primo's high school. So it was actually quite unexpected that we moved. We worked really hard to find the right fit. Primo went to Midpac for their freshman year. Oh, right, that's right. Okay. And um, yeah, and they loved it. They thrived there. And I actually felt quite guilty taking them out of this mm, very this environment that was seemed so nourishing and uh, seemed like such a good fit and to pull them out of that and put them into a new environment. But, you know, in the end, it ended up being like the best thing ever. Um, so they actually, when we moved after their freshman year, they took a year off from school because the San Francisco Unified School District wouldn't they just have all these different rules. Like you can't enroll a kid unless there are boots in the ground in front of them, you know, in the district office. And I moved in advance of Primo and Dave to back to the city. So I couldn't get them into the schools that I wanted to. And I ended up enrolling them into Independence High School, which is a school in the avenues that, you know, students only have to go to school three days a week. It's kind of like college. I mean, it's, it's, and it's for students who have to work to support their families. It's for, you know, ballet, ballet dancers who are studying with, you know, American, you know, San Francisco ballet, and they have to put in X number of days. It's for actors who have to work outside of school professionally, and they can only go to school three days a week, right? So, you know, that was this, it's a, it's a public school. So Primo ended up there for a year and it ended up, I just, we just told them like, Hey, treat this year like a studio year, make music, draw, we'll do whatever you like, you know, like relax, acclimate to, cause they're very kind of, they're like, you know, kind of typical overachieving kid. They really are work at a super fast pace and high velocity and are, you know, always kind of setting out new challenges for themselves and, we're like, hey, just relax this year, you know, like get your bearings. We're moving to the continent, yeah. like see what it's not like. Part of their DNA to um, relax, huh? It's hard. Not, not, a, not, not so much. And yeah, I have a funny story about that. And Walter, if we actually had to do a little intervention, we found out they were, you know, staying up and well, we knew they were staying up until 11 p.m. midnight doing homework. And we thought that there was like, this is impossible. We have to talk to Mrs. Auberg about the workload for these students. This is bananas. And it turns out that, you know, 
Primo was doing homework for the next week. So we actually had to stage an intervention with them and get them to slow down. Yeah. Anyway, but, you know, so they, so that's what they ended up doing. Sophomore year was kind of like a transition year. And then by the end of sophomore year, they were like, oh my God, they were like, they weren't doing any homework practically and getting straight A's. And they're like, I'm ready now to, you know, really kind of ratchet up in terms of academic rigor. And that was kind of the plan all along. So, you know, we, they ended up going to an incredible high school called Lake, Lake Wilmerding High School in San Francisco. And it's a very perfect kind of um, extension of their Waldorf foundation. Uh, Lick has a, ba- their foundation is kind of Bauhausian. So their motto is head, heart, hands, which is very Waldorf. Mm-hmm. Um, and to integrate these different aspects of yourself. So they went to Lick. They had an incredible experience there, even though three quarters of it was online, you know, because they started their junior year and then went into lockdown after fall semester, pretty much. Um, so that was, you know, a challenge, but they managed to thrive through that experience. And um, I, I, I regret not having more parent time because we are we're one of those parents, you know, we like sign up for all the volunteering activities and, you know, I. I'm delighted to make whatever banana bread for a bake sale, all of that stuff. Um, yeah, I was savoring that, but it, you know, being in, uh, being, uh, working from home was made that challenging. Yeah. But they had a great experience there. Graduated high school and then just decided to go on to Harvard just because, right? <laughs> so is that a Primo, question? <laughs> Primo, Primo's at Harvard. What's Primo doing now? um primo's like living you know an amazing life i think we just visited them in cambridge boston for a week uh, a couple weeks ago um what are they doing now they are a rising junior at harvard college and um their concentration is in linguistics with uh i think it's a double major with folklore and mythology um so you can't shake that waldorf inspiration there um yeah uh they are loving japanese which they turn they started taking you know at waldorf you start i don't have to tell you this but you start taking at least one language typically it's two in first grade so primo was has been studying japanese since first grade and they're still studying it at harvard and they are just loving their sensei there and um you know, the linguistics class that they took last year was in Japanese. Um, so they're loving the pursuit of language. Um, they're the, let's see, they are the publisher for the Harvard Advocate, which is the oldest, longest, continuously run uh, literary magazine, collegiate literary magazine in the country, founded in, I don't know what, 1800s, maybe. Um, so they're the publisher for the Advocate. Does that advocate relate to the other advocate that you can buy at the grocery store that's the LGBTQIA advocate? No relation. No, no relation. Um, coincidental in the um, magazine name. Um, but they are queer, non-binary, and they you know continue to make community um, with other queer folk. They live in a co-op. Um, off campus, it's a Harvard-run co-op, but you know it's a really queer space, 
and um, we've visited a couple of times, and it's just an incredible experience, I think, for the students there. Um, whether you're queer or otherwise, it is really loving. I mean, it's a lot like a Waldorf environment, actually. You know, it's DIY. You have to take out your own trash. And I know it sounds like such a no big deal, but like if you're at Harvard, this, the workload is bananas. Like, let's just get that out of the way. It really is hard to go to school there. It's not easy to keep your grades up and all of the extracurriculars and every Harvard student that we've met is like doing 10 different things and they're all amazing, you know, and living at the co-op, I think it provides the students, those students who are living there with this, you know, just kind of a space to relax and be at home. There's a piano downstairs, Primo plays piano. There's a big, you know, uh, commercial grade kitchen where they've got like three refrigerators and, you know, a prof- like professional grade oven and stovetop and all of the things. And they cook for each other every night. And uh, like, you know, 30 students come together to eat and they host a dinner every semester for their faculty. You can invite any faculty you want. And, you know, it really is, um, a, I think has been, has been a game changer for Primo moving from the dorms, which every Harvard frosh ha- is required to live on the yard in the dorms. And I think it's a smart move on Harvard's part because it really does keep everybody close. And, you know, it's really like forms community in that way and encourages it anyway. Um, but they were ready to move off campus in um, sophomore year last year. And it was like, I couldn't have been happier with uh, their experience. Um, yeah, just being close to other students and being able to hold a space for, I don't know, fragility and um vulnerability and the way in which school, especially a school like that, can really run you down and being able to uh, kind of retreat to a home space that feels really safe is just crucial. And um, I just applaud the co-op. Yeah, I was going to say, when you think about it, it didn't strike me until just now, as you're talking about this idyllic, cozy, utopia co-op situation it never dawned on me until this moment that so much of your child's college experience is dependent on who they dorm with or room with right like your mental health your ability to feel safe and you're thrown together with maybe one maybe two or three at the most people that you don't know and if that doesn't go well then you have potentially a lot of trouble on your hands whereas in the nice big cozy queer safe space of a co-op queer aside, whatever you've chosen people or you're there because everyone wants to be there. It seems like a really great idea. And maybe that's not unusual, but I'm just thinking about how wonderful that sounds. And as a mom, it probably makes you feel, you know, especially happy knowing your child is safe in a, in a big, wonderful place like that. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I saw uh, one or two recent grads from Harvard who were you know, grad who've graduated, they came, they came, I love that our house was like, you know, ground central for um, uh, pride week. So Primo and their partner, Cam came back for pride in San Francisco, because there's nothing like it. I attended my first pride, we used to call it gay day. Um, I, I attended my first gay day week in my first pride when I was 18 years old here in San Francisco. And um, so it's kind of a Christmas, you know, it's like a really special, it's queer Christmas. So everybody comes home and they come here to our house to get ready. And it's like, 
loud and bustling and, you know, it's all this activity. And so we got to hang out with a couple of Primo's friends who lived in, or at least, yeah, I think at least one or two who lived in the co-op who were graduated. And they were telling me that it was like, um, you know, it, it not just like a safe space, but it's really saved them and it made their experience at college, um, period, you know, that exactly as you say, they uh, could take as much, have as much space around them as they needed, but also feel really held, um, you know, kind of take a break from the madness of campus and that, you know, uh, demanding environment. Um, and it, and, you know, and, and the Harvard, Harvard co-op is just as grungy as you, any other co-op that you can imagine or have ever set foot in. You know, first thing I wanted to do when I walked in there was clean. <laughs> I'm like, somebody give me the Windex. Where's the, you know, where's the vinegar and water combo so I can just start spraying down the surfaces, which I love. I love that they are responsible for their own, uh, you know, cleaning and all of that. And they have like a whole schedule that they, that they uh, have to follow. But anyway, I have talked to other members of the co-op community and when I've asked them what they, what they love about it, it's, it's exactly as you say, it's like, you know, you, they chose it for themselves in Harvard. You can, what they call block, you can like choose, I think it's like seven other students to room with for sophomore through uh, high, through last year in college, their senior year. So they they have done a few things really right at Harvard. Like, and, you know, all of Primo's freshman year roommates were all queer. So it's not, but just because you're queer doesn't mean that you, like, you have so much right. in common. Exactly. You know, 100% not true. Like, that's, you know, I mean, I don't know. That seems silly to think that. It, better Better odds. Yeah, maybe you have some better, and you just feel safer with each other for sure. But um, yeah, no guarantee that it's gonna it's gonna be a match made in heaven. One thing that I really appreciate about the Primo story is that for parents listening who are worried about their child's long term success potential, um, who worry that the child has to be held, you know, to a strict academic calendar and um, you know outcomes driven process with, you know, the right academic science, math, and we almost always think of STEM stuff when we think about, you know, Harvard or the Ivies or success. Um, and arts often are uh, seen, in my opinion, publicly. The general consensus seems to be that if you focus your time and energy in the arts that you won't necessarily be geared for the success that people hold as the highest form of success, which is Harvard and whatever comes after that. What I love about the Primo story is that it feels, from my vantage point, like a completely nurturing, child-focused, slowed down, do what really feels right and what matters, heavily arts and culture-focused childhood with no pressure to, I'm using air quotes, succeed. Um, or do the things that one would do to ensure your child gets into the best university in the country. Um, can you speak to that, to sort of how you approached your child's academic life or upbringing and what your concerns or thoughts or lack of concerns were about long-term success, college, career? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. And I'm glad that you asked 
you asked it or ask it because, um, you know, after Primo got into Harvard, I was at this party. I was at this party, like Primo was still in high school and the letters had already come out. So there was like a couple months, you know, after the letters came out, the acceptance letters, and we were at this party in Berkeley and there was this mom there who had like, I don't know, like a 10 or 11 year old, she was absolutely not interested in us. I mean, she, you know, there's like all this activity going on, but you know, I'm like, I'm such a chatterbox. I will talk to anyone, everyone. I'm like, I want to know everyone's story. And she was just not interested in us until she found out that Primo got into Harvard. And so Harvard really has this like pretty powerful effect on folks. When, when folks find out that your kid goes there, that you go there, it's like, oh, you know, hold the phone. This is like, tell me all of the notes. Give me the shortcut. What's the cliff notes for making, you know, making it to an Ivy League school or whatever. And honestly, like when Primo was getting ready to apply to college, I was like, I was asking some of those questions myself of my friends. I was like, how do you do it? What does the application look like? You know, all this kind of stuff. But I think, in, you know, our our approach to uh, college applications was no different than our approach to, you know, anything else that we did in, in raising Primo, which was like, it needs to start with Primo. Like, as you say, it needs to be child focused. You know, we never force them to do anything. And, and we were lucky too. I mean, a lot of parents say like, well, Primo was already kind of, um, you know, had a, had a kind of tendency to want to achieve. And that's true. We never had to push them to do homework or any of that. We, we, made sure that we created an environment where they felt uh, uh, safe and that they uh, we cre- created a kind of armature and structure for them to succeed, meaning that they weren't hungry. They were going to bed on time. They were getting enough sleep. They weren't, you know, watching TV or gaming or, you know, l- using their phones until their eyes bleed or <laughs> whatever. You know, it's like we did lots of things to ensure that they had uh, you know, good chance of success for doing homework and all of that, but we never really had to push them. So when it came time to the college thing, I was really surprised when Primo didn't was not interested in applying. They were like, uh, uh, they just, I gave them all of the room in the world to like engage, engage, engage. And in the end, I asked them, do you want my help? And they said, yes. And so we really worked together to like, they were also like doing a ton of different things. They were like co-president of the GSA. They were, you know, working already, you know, remotely for two different companies. They were consulting. They were, you know, uh, they were um, coaching folks in, in Japanese. I mean, they were doing like, they had a really full schedule. Yeah, they were designing clothes. They were sewing like a mad person, like making quilts and you know, designing, you know, fashion lines and all. Yeah, they were like banana. It's a Waldorf kid. This is exactly a Waldorf kid. You know, they're making all the time music too and singing during the pandemic. They're, you know, one of their friends would, yeah. would for sure all of that, all of that. Yeah, yeah, but um, but yeah. So the college, the college thing was really like, you know, I think. To, to get the kid into the Ivy League school, it's really about it's really about what the kid is doing during high school. You know, I mean, yes, the essay matters and yes, the grades matter and all of that. But it's like beyond that, it's like the college, I think, is really interested in who the individual is. 
And so, you know, that all happens before the application is even submitted or written, yeah. right? So it's like, well, who who is this child? Yeah. And it's really like raising a child who understands who they are or giving them the best shot possible to really like define themselves, you know, and really see themselves in the world. That's, that's, I think what we did before the application process that led to like, holy smokes, when you start looking at how it all adds up in the application, we never did it because of the application. Primo was like doing all these things on their own, but it, you know, when you see it like in aggregate and summarized into this resume, it's really impressive. But the motivation was never to get into an idea. I want to stop and hit back, hit on this point again, because this to me is one of the most important things that I wish parents would really grasp. And that is that when you say you were lucky because you had a kid who, you know, didn't give you much trouble and did their homework and so on and so forth. I, I really want to go back and give you and David credit because I think setting the child up for success absolutely has to start at creating a nurturing, loving, safe home environment where the parents get along and are happy and enjoy life and the child does not feel undue pressure to do things that they either don't want to do, don't understand the importance of, or can't do well. And I think so many parents fall off the trail when they are focused on a goal. And let's just say the goal is Harvard and miss all the opportunities along the way for the child to really feel themselves, figure out who they are. And I think that's what you did wittingly or unconsciously so brilliantly is, and that's why he's such a great kid. So I think you, you deserve a lot of credit. Of course, some of it is just hardwiring and your unique constitution that you're born with, or maybe that you inherit through ancestral DNA. Um, but certainly it has a lot to do with how you parented. Yeah. I mean, first of all, thanks for, thanks for going back to, you know, creating a safe environment and a stable platform and foundation for children to be, learn, live. I think that it's true that we can't underestimate the impact and uh, the, the influence that that kind of environment has on a child. So hundred percent there with you. Um, in terms of race, you know, uh, it, it, you know, it was interesting raising Primo who's biracial. So David is black American and, you know, I'm Filipino American. And it was interesting raising Primo in Hawaii with where there's so few black folk. Um, you know, we were, were our friends with, you know, I could, I could probably count on two hands, the families that, are black in Hawaii that we were close with or even knew. And at Waldorf, there certainly were very few children who were uh, biracial or mixed race or black, um, you know, identify as African-American or even African, um, any kind of black. So that was kind of a thing like that we were very aware of raising Primo in that environment. Um, the fact that my family is so Filipino and Filipino identified, and I'm really interested in the history and culture and um, was always working on a project that centered on that aspect of our identities and our family life and cooking and eating and all of these things that make us who we are. Um, you know, I was like so proud that Primo liked to eat certain Filipino foods, you know, like 
they are kind of a picky eater, but there are certain Filipino foods that my dad would make or just like 100% so good for you. And also you kind of, it's kind of an acquired taste and Primo was just into it. I was like, yes, this is why we're here. Um, but uh, I think that it has played a, a, an important role. And I think uh, culture and race have, you know, when we moved to, it was a huge shift when we moved from island to continent and uh, when they were a sophomore and then being identified out ex- on an exterior in an exterior way as being black um that wasn't something that they had to encounter when we lived in hawaii because uh, all the kids there are so mixed they never really got asked like what are you or whatever when you're in hawaii right so when we moved to the Bay Area and they started getting clocked as black and they felt really, I mean, not to speak on their behalf, but that was a really uh, major shift in uh, their own identity in the way that we, I, you know, there is like more uh, anti-black violence here in the Bay Area than there is in Hawaii. And that's something that I had to really integrate and David and I had to talk about. Um, so it became part of our, absolutely a part, moved to the front part of our minds 100% when we moved to the continent. And Primo talked a lot about it with us, you know, how they really felt resentful that folks kind of assumed that they were a certain way or that they were a certain thing or had a certain behavior just from how they look. And, um, and then the George Floyd riots, like, or the protests happened, right? So which we were a part of and, um, you know, Primo made their own Black Lives Matter t-shirt and we all went into the street to, and talked a lot, you know, as a family about what it means, what our politics are, what our beliefs are, what we, what role we play in advocating for others who don't have uh, a seat at the table, you know, who need to, um, have greater visibility and power in the social justice system. Um, this is dinner conversation for us. So this kind of thing that we talk about a lot in our house um, and I'm laughing, but it's also like, that's serious. That's real. You know, this is where we come together and I love that I can have this kind of conversation with my kid. Um, I feel like job well done, mom and dad, you know, like we, we did it. Like, we raised someone who is conscious of their privilege and understands that they have a responsibility in the world to stand up for others who can't, um, who don't, who are invisible or who are rendered invisible, who are marginalized, disenfranchised, that, you know, each one of us can ha- make a difference. Um, that's kind of slogan talk, but, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of action behind that rhetoric and i you know both dave and i are so proud of primo for um making a way in this world where their voice is heard you know loud and clear by others and i think they're for sure a natural leader but what comes out of your mouth like and what's in the mind you know what are you thinking about um and that's the thing that we're the most proud of is that they they have um inherited not just our values, because we don't want just a little robot that we're raising that has the same values as us. It's like, no, they challenge us all the time because we're getting old and we have our own conservatism in our own way, right? So 
Um, yeah, so I think race and culture have played a major role in all of our lives. You know, each of us has experienced discrimination um, and and gender discrimination too. I mean, you know, Primo can speak to that more than David and I can, uh, but it's something that we, I think is a, a current that flows through all of each of our lives and that we, um, we discuss, you know, whether it's on text or in person um, and it, it, I, I can't, it's like, it's almost like the air we breathe, you know, like we, we think about and live through racism and discrimination and thinking about ways to counter these, uh, these, um, whatever these experiences, um, both on a systemic level and on a personal level, it's something that we, um, we welcome, I think, and are not afraid to kind of to to discuss or um, clap back to in our everyday lives. Yeah, something that Primo really, I felt powerfully from Primo even when they were younger, and that was that there seemed to be um, neither the need to define them nor the ability to define them. Like if you just sort of were lucky enough to know them, you know, as a child, it was sort of like, hmm, um, this is this whole situation that they represent forced me in my like brief encounters to sort of say, I have a tendency to need to define things and that's not cool um, necessarily. And it's really good to just be able to get to know a human being and say, this human being is a human being and uh, I don't need to put everything into a box. Um, I also want to say that the sort of the ability to have those dinner conversations speaks highly of the fact that that comfort and that um, openness was there from day one because you know part of the important role of parents is to create a place where you can talk about anything and everything safely and you can't just do it in the moment of crisis that has to be firmly established you know from the beginning as something that you do as a family as part of your family culture and they think um, you know the fact that you are um, uh, such a rainbow family in all aspects. And I love the fact that you, we've talked about religion today because I think religion often gets a bad rap um, as something that, you know, progressive, creative, mixed race, you know, public advocate types don't, you know, don't dally in. Um, or even when you first started talking about, you know, how we don't talk very often about being parents. And I think specifically in the more liberal, progressive, artistic, um, intellectual worlds, the idea of parenting and the preciousness of children and, and being a parent, that's maybe often also sidelined as something that's conventional or, you know, doesn't really fit in. So I really, for that reason and many others, I'm so glad that you are here today sharing some of your perspectives because I think they truly are unique and for that reason, especially valuable. Um, we're almost out of time, so as we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts or um, regrets you want to share, things you would have done differently, things you think you did great, final thoughts of any nature related to parenting or anything else? Yeah, um, I don't have any regrets. I, I will say that. I think that we, we did what we came here to do, um, but I will say that uh, a major kind of uh, tentpole in our parenting 
uh, has really been to fiercely protect the imagination of our child. And we, I think David and I believed that before we got to Waldorf and Waldorf really solidified it and gave us language and tools for doing it. Um, and, you know, there's lots of like stink looks that you get from the kids. If you, whatever, you know, uh, we, we had this policy of like no TV during the week, TV only on the weekends. I mean, it's kind of, it seems like, I don't know, no big deal. That's how we were raised. We did not watch TV during the week and, you know, maybe a soap opera after school or something, but then I have to turn it off and like wash the rice and water the garden and do my homework and like all these chores. And so we raised Primo very much the way that we were raised. And I think it's super important for to fear, for parents to fiercely protect their children's imagination. And that means, you know, um, not to be a total Waldorf, Waldorf zealot and believer, but, you know, with, when we were in those Mrs. Otberg's classroom, um, she would talk about like how this media that's produced out, you know, in there in the world by Hollywood or whomever else, YouTube, um, you know, when a child looks at that media, it gets projected into their being, into their souls and imprinted there. And, you know, I just hated that idea of like these outsiders having some kind of imprint on my child and not not to be a, a, an, an egomaniac or narcissist or something like that. Like only my media can get imprinted on you, kid. But in a way, yeah, like let's let's what can you project into your own self? Like I want to so, see and know who you are. I want all of your ideas to start with you. How do we create an environment where we can protect your imagination from these outsiders getting into you and so that you can generate from your own self, your own core, your own imagination? And David and I went through some pretty, you know, I wouldn't say extreme, but we went through some very deliberate lengths in order to protect Primo's imagination. And I think that is something that we really did right. I'm really proud of. I love, oh, thanks love, for asking. love, love that so much. Oh, that's what a wonderful way to end. Thank you for your time. This has been really fabulous for me. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I know that the listeners will get so much out of this. Um, I, usually, I sure did. Thanks, Christine. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Say hello to David and give Primo a hug. Will do. Thanks. Bye-bye. Aloha. This has been another episode of a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd leave me a rating or subscribe. Subscribing helps boost my ratings, and rating me obviously helps boost my ratings, but only if you liked what you heard. But apropos that, whether or not you do or don't like this, I really do like feedback. So please drop me a line if you'd like. Let me know if there's someone you want me to interview or a certain topic you'd like me to tackle. You can find out more about a Really Good Enough Parent podcast on the Pono Roots website at ponoroots.org. That's P-O-N-O-R-O-O-T-S dot org. Pono Roots is a nonprofit program, and if you wish to support our work, donations are always welcome. And with that, I'll leave you a quote from Carl Jung and something that my children remind me of every day. You are what you do, not what you say you'll do. Thank you. Take care. Aloha.
George loves Detroit.